to the Catapult High Performance Podcast. This podcast is a Catapult initiative created to serve as a learning and development tool for performance practitioners. We'll be sharing the latest sports science research, user stories and best practices, and stories of positive social impact that stem from sport itself. We are committed to delivering world-class support to help you improve the performance of your athletes and your team. So join us in the biggest performance community in elite sport for a journey of collective development. Welcome to the 13th episode of the Catapult High Performance Podcast. In this episode, Catapult sports scientist Kieran Howe talks to Hugh Fulliger. Hugh is currently a lecturer in sport and exercise science at the University of Technology in Sydney. Over the course of his career, Hugh has worked in both applied and research environments. Initially, Hugh started in a sports science team servicing various European soccer clubs, Olympic athletes and the German Football Federation. Before joining UTS, Hugh spent time at the Oakland Raiders as an SNC assistant and performance analyst. During his time in the United States, he also served as sports science coordinator for the University of Oregon. In this episode of the podcast, Hugh and Kieran discuss the relevance of applicability of sports-based research, how technology may help to bridge the gap between performance departments, and the importance of reflective and continuous learning in both applied and research-based settings. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Hugh. Thanks for joining us, mate. Hey, Kieran. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks, mate. So why don't we just start, mate, and just give a bit of a background on, on yourself, you know, what, what experiences you've had that have sort of led to the, the current role at UTS and, and what sort of research you're primarily involved in. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I've, I suppose I did my bachelor's and master's at University of Wollongong back in 2008 through to 2013 or so, and then... I did my PhD overseas um, in Germany at the at Saarland University and FIFA Medical Centre of Excellence over there in collaboration with UTS. Um, so, yeah, been mentored by some great supervisors and uh, met a lot of great colleagues along sort of that academic uh, mix of applied and academic path. And then from Germany, uh, after spending a few years there, uh, spent the last, well, sorry, spent 2015 uh, 2016, 17, so about three years in the US working in uh, collegiate sports, so working for the University of Oregon and also for the NFL, um, for the Oakland Raiders in both uh, strength and conditioning capacity, uh, the main role being an applied sports scientist. And then the last two or three years, been back here, um, back at home at least in New South Wales. So been working for UTS for the last two and a half years uh, as a lecturer. So teaching now in undergraduate subjects, uh, sports medicine, exercise rehabilitation sort of focus, as well as our new Master of High Performance Sports, so postgraduate uh, online, uh, as well as um, practical context as well. So, yeah, it's been really good. And also, obviously, given a, the academic position that UTS got a, a bunch of different research projects uh, going as well. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's good to be home and I've really enjoyed my, my current role now for UTS, which is great. Yeah, nice, mate. Packed a, a lot into those years since 2008. So, um, <laughs> a, lot of, uh, have... lot of tra- a lot of traveling anyway. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, a lot better in normal times. But um, sure. just, just speaking to you a bit earlier, some of the research that you've done, you know, obviously around that evidence based practice and, and how that's applied within the industry is, is really interesting. Um, first of all, just that 
research that you've done recently on Australia versus US perceptions um, of evidence-based practice was also really interesting. Do you mind just touching on that a bit and, and giving your overview? Yeah, I suppose just recently or in the last couple of years, some of, at least, at least my personal interests after working in sport and sort of coming back into academia, there's always a mix of both those roles. I think if you're a practitioner in sport or if you're a research researcher and academic, I think, at least in our field, I think both jobs lend themselves to the other in some ways. Um, so there's always a mix of it uh, through through someone's experience, whether you're, whether you're an intern or at a club or a professor at a uni. But I think one of my interests was how, you know, what's that gap in practice? So we, we try and do all this research from an academic perspective. How can we really uh, advantage our sporting organisations or our teams or our athletes, which is our, our primary goal essentially is to support, um, support decision-making surrounding athlete health and performance if you wanted a catch-all whistle-stop tour of sports science I suppose as a collective term so I suppose being in different environments across the world and seeing how research is applied in practice definitely sort of sparked my interest in that area and speaking to a lot of both practitioners athletes coaches academics researchers students there seems to be a sort of a lot of anecdotal evidence to say that um, you know, there's a lot of gaps to how that research is applied in practice. I think one thing that's important to note with evidence-based practice is a lot of the times we think that evidence-based practice or how we apply evidence uh, within industry is focused around um, how research is applied. And, it's, and evidence-based practice isn't really just research. It should take into account um, the experience, the expertise of the athlete, um, again, the coach's viewpoints, as well as the, the experience of the practitioner, so as, as well as the environment in which they work. So evidence-based practice isn't just that research concept. It, it's, it's quite holistic and takes into account a number of different factors that I think we need, that I need, we need to consider. So I think that's the interest. I think the interest lies within that, trying to sort of close that gap, I think. A lot of people, um, a lot of practitioners and researchers do a great job all across the globe, I think in, you know, taking a research finding or taking someone's viewpoint, understanding culture, and then trying to mold, I suppose, that collection of evidence and then saying, okay, does this idea uh, work for our group and the resources that we have so we can benefit performance or we can reduce or try and reduce that risk of injury occurring or can we improve maybe that, that tactical performance side? So I think everyone... You know, we, we've got some great, we've got some great people. I think who work in our industry. It's just that I think, given the amount of work that we all do together, uh, can that sort of that effort be streamlined? I suppose. So we've done some pilot work um, within the US. Um, you know, getting a lot of practitioner views, uh, asking them how, you know, what do they think of evidence-based practice? How do they apply it? What are some of the barriers to accessing and implementing? Um, some of those things and I think it, I, I really enjoyed sort of understanding how the people on the ground uh, what some of the challenges they're facing what are the barriers and that's one side to it and now we've tried to sort of expand that a little bit further in Australia here by getting perspectives both from players and coaches as well so trying to increase that stakeholder understanding or at least our understanding of the collective stakeholders now not all situations will be the same 
But uh, yeah, it's been great to also you know, understand a lot of those stakeholders because a lot of the time, a lot of the challenges as we have as practitioners, and it's probably, I assume, that the majority of people who are listening to this are practitioners, a lot of the challenges sometimes that we have is outside our control and we need to get an understanding of what the people, you know, perhaps above us think about and engaging those people within the, within the process is really important. So, yeah, it's been great to sort of, sort of garner that understanding of both or all of those stakeholders and some of their perceptions and, and how they yeah, apply sort of that evidence-based practice for want of a better collective term. Um, so yeah, it's been a, been a really good, um, yeah, it's been a good process and we're just sort of um, finishing up our study with um, the Australian cohort for that. So um, yeah, look, we've got some preliminary results, which I'm probably happy to discuss if you wanted to go through some of those. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's a really interesting area and just some of those perceptions and differences between, you know, Australia where we're you know, sports science and and the application of research has probably been around for, for quite a while. So what differences there are that exist between here and, and America would be um, interesting to hear what you what you found so far. Yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, and this isn't, I, w- I wouldn't say this is a new concept at all. And that's, there's been a lot of great work done by a lot of people over many, many years in Australia. Um, obviously, the AIS has been embedded here for, for many years, way before our time. And um, yeah, we're definitely just following on, hopefully, from, from some of their great early work. Um, but some of the things that we've sort of tr- understood from all sort of practitioners that at least we've surveyed, now there's always a self-selection bias in their survey, so there's, you've got to take things with a grain of salt. But mainly we're looking at individuals who are working full-time in professional sport that's the sort of cohort that we're looking at just at the moment um obviously we want to expand that but sort of restricting it to that sort of professional um elite setting and obviously full-time workers as well and across both sort of countries we've got a pretty consistent um idea that you know people they, they, they enjoy it they like using it they see the value in it they view it as important and that's pretty um that's sort of strongly agreed across our countries. I think the areas of which people are interested in, those sort of the research areas at least, are very they're common as well. So they sort of lend themselves to, from a research perspective, the areas that are sort of more heavily researched. So if you've got more articles, if you've got more information, if you've got more experience in you know, that is tied to your role, which might be training, load monitoring, it might be the prescription of recovery, then obviously you'll lend yourself to investigating that area more and that's where you sort of get your sort of sources of information. Um, I think probably maybe a bit of the differences that we've found between the US and Australia was those those barriers to implementation. So sort of that, how do we access that evidence and how do we implement it? And I think in Australia, a lot of that was around... You know, when we, if you couldn't use sort of evidence-based practice, why do you think that was? And one of the main things that we found was in Australia was the non-applicable research came up a lot, I think. So that translation of research, what are the practical applications of the findings? And that, that's been a pretty hot topic, I suppose, in the last few months. Um, and it's been, a, you know, it's been a discussion point for, for many years probably as well. So it really highlights that practitioners and maybe sort of seeking a bit more answers in terms of some of the current research that we're producing as, as academics, at least in the sports science field, uh, from an Australian perspective. So, you know, maybe we need to, you know, that would lend itself to say, given that the practitioners, you know, they're, they're 
just as just as educated as, as us and obviously have you know vast amounts of experience within the sport it would lend itself to increasing that transferability of results and application of what we're doing now that's nothing new i suppose of, of an outcome but it's definitely interesting to, to say that you know i don't think research is stalled at all but i think maybe we just need to really engage all the stakeholders within the process and i think we've all probably done research where we haven't included the key stakeholders from the beginning. So a lot of the responses and anecdotal responses from the people that we've talked to, the best results usually come from when all key stakeholders are involved at the beginning and the, the research questions or the performance questions come from the ground, come from the, the organization, from the coach, from the playing group, uh, from the practitioner, maybe together. And then they, you know, they're developed in collaboration with, with, with researchers of how best to attack that problem. Now, that may be a really short-term resolution. There might be long-term questions. Um, um, so that's one, of, that's one of the interesting things we found. Um, compared to maybe the US, where one of the uh, barriers to implementing sort of the collective evidence was uh, applicable, non-applicable research was also a reason, but... No, poor player compliance in the US was a bit more of an issue than it was in Australia. And that probably comes from cultural context, like you were talking about here in terms of obviously sports science or performance support has been probably more uh, historically supported by that Australian uh, education and AIS system, uh, I suppose. So yeah, an interesting, you know, so what are some of the, how do we overcome those barriers in terms of uh, player compliance, maybe in, in, in the United States? some of what we're doing. So, yeah, it's just interesting to, um, I think it's some pretty interesting findings that hopefully we'll publish soon and we can have some, some sort of trying to really develop key strategies, I suppose, to overcome those barriers. So we always just talk about, oh, you know, increasing the applicability of, of the research or, you know, improve the translation, but coming up with actually clear strategies of how to do that sort of one of the goals we have here with our group um, of how to do that. Um, and probably the final interesting I think that we found is we talked to, or we surveyed players and coaches and some of the things that they valued in pract practitioners. So what we asked them, what would make you more likely to trust, uh, engage with uh, and seek evidence from your practitioner? So, um, and they pretty comprehensively talked about uh, experience within the sport. Um, so not just your, not really your sort of education uh, per se, but having that excellent, excellent knowledge of the sport uh, experience uh, and communication skills. So it shows that really, I think it appears like obviously you need an increase in need for that translational research, especially we found in psychological and mental areas of sports science, things like skill acquisition and tactics. Coaches are really seeking that out of their practitioners more and more. Um, but it also shows that we probably need to incorporate those communication skills into that educational curriculum a lot better, I think. So from an academic and teaching perspective, um, you know, we talk a lot about soft skills and we probably overburden it. But when we know that the players are going to trust us more clearly from doing that, we probably need to educate it more. And I don't believe that it's just experience that gives you that communication skills. There's a lot of educational forums of which we can make better imprint on our, and teach our students better in those areas. Um, it also shows that we probably have to sort of really, we have a heightened importance for those early internships and experiences in those applied settings for young practitioners, which is obviously a challenge given the amount of people that are doing or studying in our field.
Um, but it shows it, it shows that importance when players and coaches are more likely to engage with us. Obviously, we can't control maybe the experience um, or the knowledge of the sport per se, because um, that, that takes years to acquire. Um, but some of the other things we can attack sort of in the sort of educational setting, um, in the internship setting. Uh, but it also shows the value as well of investing in a sport. So I think if you're a practitioner and I think we've all been guilty of this, sometimes you're so in your own world about how am I doing my role as best I can when we know that the people who are sort of your bosses, they, at least in our you know, pilot work, obviously every situation is going to be different. They're going to trust you more if you know, you know the, the shit out of a sport, for, I suppose. So it shows the, the value of investing time and knowledge into that particular sport. And that may be really easy for someone who grew up as an AFL footballer and they played, you know, grade or rep footy. And then they went into the fitness staff at their local club. And now they're 20 years at an AFL club. And that's obviously, that's their life. But some of our, you know, some of our students may not have that, but they'll be really passionate about certain sports. So it shows maybe the, the value of really investing during those internships and maybe heightening that focus. Not that you can't cross between sports, but we just found that interesting that that real sports specific knowledge was really critical for both coaches and athletes. Long winded answer. Sorry, Ben. That's all very interesting, mate. I think as you were talking, I sort of had a question as well about, again, that applicability of the research. Um, We often think of these big, you know, multi-club, you know, multi-league, multi-sport study sometimes is having the most um, application um, towards practice because of the strength of that research. But a lot of the the gems, I guess, that we find within research is often those small, you know, opportunistic data collection that that happens in single clubs where a practitioner is trying to validate their own anecdotal assumptions. Um, you know, that's often the sort of research that's very practically relevant and often done from that individual practitioner trying to gain you know, some sort of advantage over the competition, which is why that research is so well received. Whereas those large scale studies obviously have a lot more applicability because of the strength and weight of the research. So how do we kind of go about navigating you know, those two sort of outcomes and, and using the best evidence to make sure that we're applying the right things in practice. Yeah, I suppose like we have to think about what are the goals of obviously ourselves as practitioners, but the goals of the organisation of which we're employed for, if we're talking from a practitioner standpoint. So obviously the goal of the organisation is to hopefully drive positive change in their community, but obviously they want to win, um, they want to make money. And our role within that, I think, as practitioners primarily really is to optimise their health, I would say, at least at the, at the ground level if we're looking at maybe a, a nutritionist, a strength and conditioning coach or a sports scientist. So if we can, if we can optimise athlete availability in most sports, you're going to have an increased chance um, to win. Now, the hard balance is when we do multi-club studies is that clubs will say, well, we, if we find a, a secret, which there isn't really a secret ingredient, but if we find a secret ingredient to player availability, then why would, I wanna, why would we want to participate in these big multi-club studies which might actually help um, guide, guide practice? And, yeah, so you're always going to run into issues there with um, what's the priority of the organisation and, what, and, what's, and what's, their, what's their goals. I think... 
again, for holistic athlete health, I think we really should all be working together to prolonging the careers of athletes. So I don't think that should be siloed to each sporting institution or organisation to say, look, we want to, we just want to look after our own backyard and make sure that's really in check. We don't really care about what anyone else is doing. And that's within their right, I suppose, to do. But I think we would all move forward really well in terms of making sport safer per se and prolonging athletes' careers uh, if we work together. So you see some of those UA, big UEFA and big European soccer studies um, that the big UEFA groups do over there. And that, that provides, I think, really good insight into player health and safety in terms of, okay, things like FIFA 11 plus, you know, that, those things can make massive changes across a lots of levels of sport, levels of football in that case, but levels of sport. So I think we have to, they were always going to be pulled both ways as a practitioner. How can I make, you know, be part of the greater good and push things forward? But then my primary role is to make sure the team essentially is winning and my athletes are the healthiest. And the other part of it, I suppose, is having a practitioner who's got those mix of skills where it's not just optimising athlete health, but the tactical space. And I think there's probably a really sort of growing area, at least recently, of really good skill acquisition uh, research, which sort of feeds into uh, at least team sport tactical uh, preparation and finding onto performance. And I think a lot of that stuff has balances for both providing guidance for the greats. You know, so we, we work with, not me personally, but we have members in our group who work with um, AFL teams who will still publish a lot of their research uh, with guiding principles of how to, you know, how to help in, in that sort of field. Um, but within the club, they're still developing their own models, um, again, in the tactical space, of which helps just their sole team. So I think that if you've got good people and an organisation um, who understands both those avenues like obviously they want to look after the club and if the practitioner and the research and the collaboration is doing that then that's great um but then also the balance overarching you know contributing to making sure that the sport um, is in good hands moving forward but we're, we're, all, we're making sure our athletes are looked after like at the end of the day i get a bit yeah we get a bit caught in our own field sometimes and sport is entertainment at the end of the day like i love sport as much as the next person but sport is entertainment and it's a very cultural foundation among a lot of countries and obviously things like cricket in India is you know viewed very culturally different than maybe cricket or AFL in Australia for example but we need to I think just bring ourselves back a little bit sometimes both from an organization hierarchical perspective and us as practitioners that at the end of the day it's entertainment and we should be supporting you know the production of that entertainment and the best way that we can do it is, is make the athletes healthier and there's so many avenues uh, of which we can do that but it's a, it's a really delicate it's a delicate balance and I think that you know it may not be the younger practitioners that's it's their responsibility that might be on sort of the older more experienced practitioners who can bring those things together and um, you know a, lo a lot of people do that uh, across the world I suppose um, do you think um, you just touched on something as well, which is pretty interesting about, you know, sort of multi-factorial application of that evidence-based practice between coaches and, and players, like a lot of sports science research is obviously 
you know, done within that department in terms of, you know, the various things that they're looking at. Um, do you think it's sometimes too siloed? You know, like, do, do you think the, not the future of this research, but do you think it's a, a path that we'll see more of where there's a bit more inter, um, interdepartmental, I guess, collaboration between, you know, the tactical, the wearable space, the you know, physio and recovery sort of space um, where that sort of matches up to, to guide practice moving forward as opposed to just those individual departments working in, in isolation. Yeah, for sure. Like I think I, good organizations, I'm sure, you know, they're already doing a lot of that stuff. Like there's people who are all across the globe working for different sporting organizations where it wouldn't be siloed at all. And the coach and the playing group, um, the performance staff and even driven upwards towards, you know, the GM or the, you know, the head of the footy department or, or whatever it is, I'm sure in a lot of areas that is, that's still the case. The turnover in sport always really, I think, really affects that. And that's where the sort of the leadership, especially from high up, is really important. If they're looking after that sort of, if, if their priority is to, to maintain their athlete health. Um, I suppose in terms of that multifactorial um, application, it, you know, it's super advantageous, like we talked about, to have that great knowledge in the sport and that experience and that's what is going to remove those silos and making sure that we're working across those um, you know we andrew clark's a good example who works um for the socceroos now i think is the head of performance uh, for ffa under graham arnold and andrew used to be a player himself so he's got like this obviously a huge grounding in tactical awareness for example which is going to profoundly impact the way that he can prepare physically because he knows what it's like as a player he knows that sort of that that coaching um, he's got that direct link to the coach and that trust and then obviously he's got that education in the physical performance uh, preparation space so we can't all be like that but um, that gives you an example of some of the really strong foundations of when, when, when it can work and when it looks really good um, that multifactorial application can be really really effective and that, there's a lot of people again I think do that, but there's probably a lot of areas where that concept almost doesn't make sense or doesn't even exist, I think. And that doesn't mean it, we always, I don't think like, you don't have to have evidence-based practice for success. Like, let's be real, like in an NBA team, there's five people. If there's three of those who are absolute superstars, talent, talent pulls through, but that's different you know talent for example in certain sports will outweigh anything else so we need to understand our place as well now in a larger team sports setting where availability is really important so in afl when you know you lose those top 10 players from your 22 and they're not playing i'm sure you're less likely to succeed so player health is really really critical for example so that's going to lend itself much more towards that cohesive um, cohesive departments working together because they know that across the board, it's really, really critical that their top players are playing. Um, not that that's not evident, I would say, in America, but in certain sports, maybe such, such as basketball, you know, talent, talent is everything. Now, availability of that is still pretty critical because if you top three go, then you're absolutely stuffed, like we saw with for example, Golden State Warriors, but a lot of that's, you know, a lot of that times that's out of your control. But 
it's yeah, I suppose it's a mixed answer, but it's a very um yeah, we've got to also remember that the place of this, I, I think, as well. So we're a very small piece in a very large system. Yeah, do you do you think technology as well? I'm putting my my catapult hat on, I guess. Do you feel like technology's also helped to bridge the gaps between those sorts of departments? Like I think if I think about my, you know, sort of seven, eight years in a club and now my, my time at Catapult, it's, it feels like as we're getting more crossover between, for example, GPS data into, into uh, vision and, you know, into AMS and, and those sort of platforms where you're, you're getting more departments, you know, looking at different sort of data sets. Um, it feels like that gap's getting, getting smaller. Do you feel like that's the sense here and, and maybe overseas as well? Yeah, I think when you combine that physical data with that visualisation or film or if we, if we take Catapult, for example, um, you know, from that GPS, those GPS metrics of which maybe classically we just look at physical output, you know, if we can look at actual mapping, that's not my area of expertise, but, you know, look, you know, the maps of where players are, we can create models for tactical performance, uh, which a lot of great people in Australia are currently doing. Uh, and obviously in America, we've got that combination, at least from an American football perspective, of combining that physical performance uh, or quantifying that physical performance, which obviously Catapult can do, and then combining that with uh, various film um, various film domains, which is going to have a huge impact on buy-in from coaches because, as we know, from an American football perspective, at least in the college and NFL setting, uh, their job is so much to do around film. So if you can contextualize the information and make it relevant, uh, and, and one example obviously is from a film perspective, uh, then you're going to get huge amounts of buy-in and transferability of your, of your data. So classically, we might have just reported um, physical data uh, to, to a coach or to a player or to our you know, head of performance or whoever we're doing. But now that collection of that data is going far beyond beyond that and definitely probably beyond sort of my expertise of where it is now. Um, a lot of that thing is going towards things like recruiting, um, that tactical performance, that uh, skill acquisition space like we were talking about before. So, yeah, it's really expanded, especially in the last few years, like in the last five years. Yeah, I can remember where I was five years ago and where it's gone now. It's pretty... It's, it's pretty crazy. So it's, it's, it is great to see that progression. And that's really important because I don't think we can remain stagnant and technology is really good for that because technology typically doesn't remain stagnant. And if people do, then that's where you sort of have a bit of friction. In saying that as well, though, I think it's really important to highlight that people matter first as well. So technology is a great avenue for removing those silos, is a great tool and it's part of a system. So... I wouldn't say that's the difference between winning or losing, and maybe this is the wrong place to say <laughs> that's not the difference between winning or losing, but <laughs> it's really part of the toolbox, I think it is. And I think that's yeah. really, really critical to understand it. it it's, at least from my perspective, it's, it's part of the toolbox. It's one of the things we use, but it's not the be-all and end-all. At the end of the day, people, good people are going to really drive the removal of those silos, and they're going to they're the ones making the decisions. So at the end of the day, we've still got humans making decisions. And then part of our role is obviously as practitioners is to provide and contextualize and translate that information to optimize 
um, that decision making, whoever that may be, whether it's a head of performance, a coach, a player, or you know, a GM or an athletic director, or a, you know, a head of a manager of those sports science uh, services or someone like that. So, yeah, I think our role is to support that decision making. Now, we use technology for that we use our experience we use peer-reviewed evidence we, we talk to other people where we should be open we should be learning so there's a lot of factors that go into it and technology is one thing that is really really awesome is awesome for that yeah it's um it's it is really interesting and i think um i don't know what your thoughts are but i feel like that's really helped you know that evidence-based practice within australia where we've got practitioners that are able to get buy-in from coaches and and whatnot from you know the ability to show and contextualize that data as you say um do you think is is that sort of your feel as well do you think it's something we're doing well in australia like applying those those fundamentals through research or do you feel like practitioners are more you know guided by their own i guess anecdotal assumptions or if or if they are being driven by the research or or maybe a combination of, of both i guess as well i think it's, it's different for every, every situation like <laughs> it's a very academic answer, isn't it? It depends. Um, I think there's lots of areas where we've got so many great people working across our field. I think we've got a lot, there's a lot of egos out there, but I think for the collective purpose, we've got so many great practitioners around the world in our field who do a great job of gaining that trust. Um, they've got experience in the sport. They've got great buy-in from the playing group. And those research questions are not re research questions, they're performance questions. Um, yes, they can end up as a research analysis or and provide that sort of that performance feedback loop, but they're, they're a performance question driven by that. And I think in Australia, that's, yeah, from my experience and talking to uh, a, lot of, a lot of researchers, a lot of practitioners, a lot of sporting clubs, um, and, and doing research with some of those people as well, is that I, I think we do a pretty good job of that. And they understand that, and we understand as academics that it's got to come from, from the ground floor, I suppose. It's got to come from those working every day with the athletes. And they, they know best their context, their resources, their environment, and the personalities that they work with. Um, and most good teams will work together in that. And then our job is simply, as, as researchers, is to support that, I suppose. Um, now, like what, how I good practitioner looks is obviously going to vary as well. Like a lot of players are going to have different perceptions on what a good practitioner is. And you only have to spend, <laughs> I've, I don't like to spend too much time on Twitter anymore, but you've only got to go on Twitter for 20 minutes and you'll see about 50 million different versions of a practitioner's personality um, and the way they go about their, their business. So, you know, I think we want to make sure that we're, educating our athletes but we're not always pushing them we've got to learn maybe they've got to figure things out for themselves we've got to provide them with resources but we've also got to make sure that we're we're educating in a way but they're driving the change themselves so we're not pushing things onto them and making them do things per se but the drive or the change you know whether it's behavior environment output whatever it is it's coming from within them so however we can foster an environment which encourages that i think is really really good whether that's a practitioner or a researcher or whoever that is um, and that doesn't mean you've got to be a yelling practitioner or a really quiet person i think there's 
room for lots of success within that. Same for a researcher. You don't have to be, um, you don't have to be a sort of a hybrid practitioner research to be a great researcher. You can be a complete lab nerd and I think you can more than <laughs> succeed in different environments. I hate how people, they, people make assumptions on either who people are or what a type of person is. Like I've had some students who were so sort of insular and they don't want to talk. And if people met them, they'd be like, there's no way they can succeed in sport. And that's just absolute rubbish. And some of those students now are flourishing in environments. And that just takes, I think, being, you know, we've been putting them in, into internships with good people and good environments and they're flourishing. So yeah, I've sort of gone off on a bit of a tangent there, Kieran, but I think, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think it does. It's, I guess what I'm trying to, I guess, dig into as well. I feel like there's not a lot of, I shouldn't say unconscious following of research, but I feel like sometimes those, those things that are becoming ingrained in the industry, you know, whether it's, you know, acute chronic ratios or, you know, worst case scenarios to, to name a couple where people haven't really put the validation on their own programs to see if those sorts of uh, themes are working or not. It's just a bit of an unconscious bias towards using something um, that may or may not be relevant to their own, you know, their own program, their own playing group, their, the way that their coach operates within their club. Um, yeah, you know, sure. I'm, not, I'm not sure if we go down that road a little bit too much. So, um, No, I think yeah, that's I a great what, point. Like, I think, um, yeah, well, I think we've all been guilty of it, I, I would think. Um, well, at least I have anyway. Like, yeah, it took a few years for me to realise that, yeah, you've got a reflective learning is really important. So why are we doing what we're doing? Is it impacting decision-making? Are the variables we're collect, collecting valid and reliable? Um, are we incorporating the appropriate experts and getting the, both the evidence, the balance of evidence and opinion right, those sort of things? And... Yeah, I think like I yeah, I've definitely have hopefully tried to do that better over my career, and I think a lot of a lot of other people are doing the same things. But it's a really good, really good concept just to put that spotlight back on your own program, like you say. So, why are you doing what you're doing, and is it working? Is it positively impacting the decision making? And if it's not, let's let's see why it's not. Is, is it a barrier to what I'm doing? Do I need to upskill in an area? Is it an environmental barrier. Um, this person does or doesn't trust me, or maybe they trust you too much and there's an overemphasis on a certain area and you realize actually by focusing too much on this area, are we actually ignoring the goals of what we're trying to do? Um, so it's a really good concept of continually bringing back. Like I think one of the, a good example may be um, the education of athletes and incorporating experts i suppose like we all have our we, we might work with a group of athletes that trust us really well we get on really well but the way that we educate them consistently might not actually be the best and how we're actually instilling that positive behavior change over time so a simple things like i remember when i went to arsenal a few years ago they had these really great infographic or informative infographic designs on their different parts of their recovery um recovery center i suppose in the different recovery areas i suppose they were really informative and really visually appealing um so it doesn't matter who you were obviously they're designed for the for the football players 
it doesn't matter who you are, you could go up there and go, okay, I know what I need to do. I know why I need to do it. And I trust it more. And that was probably, I assume probably from not just the sports scientist or the recovery expert designing that it's probably a graphic designer, um, you know, behavioral psychology input on why we're putting things in these areas. And so it goes beyond sort of our own expertise. So at those really high performing teams or units, um, I think the engagement of experts that are beyond our expertise. Um, for example, I've got friends who work in different areas of marketing, for example, and I show them some of our, like, um, our papers or podcasts or infographics or something like that, and they're like, that is so outdated. I cannot even fathom that your area. I'm like, oh, no, these are really cool. Like, everyone loves these or whatever. Not that the infographics aren't great. I'm not saying that. I mean, like some of the things that we think in our own field are really, really good. And we're like, these, like, how could a young practitioner not like this? Or how could an athlete not be educated by what I'm giving them? And then out, because that's not really our, it's a bit beyond our expertise, I think. And maybe we need to incorporate that within our education our systems. I know that we're trying to do that a lot within our master's program, especially like, athlete education and, and how you go about that and incorporating a lot of athletes within our program. So getting, you know, we've got players from NBA, um, NRL who, have, who are actually participating in, in that or giving resources for us within that program. And I think that's, that's really critical because sometimes we think we, what we're doing is, is working really well, or, but it could be done so much better. So engaging those external experts um, and putting that spotlight back on your own program um, yeah, is, 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 really, is really important. And I, a lot of people would do it in any other job. You, know, you have performance reviews every six months or 12 months and maybe that's one of the things you need to focus on rather than going, oh, okay, we've got less injuries this year, we're doing great. You know, move beyond that. How are we actually, how are we actually quantifying what we're doing in, that, in a lot of other areas? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The athlete education is is so important. You know, if I think about even doing my PhD in in a club and doing research, it's you know having them buy into the the process. You know, um, part of the studies that I looked at investigating recovery and in football and you know the variety of measures that we were trying to collect from players. You know, they're only um, good, you know, valid and reliable if the players really buy into the process and. Um, they understand why you're collecting that sort of information. And I think it also helps if we, as you know, he said earlier, put the spotlight back on our program, what's working, what's not, and adjust as need be as well. Um, you know, those sorts of things also show the players um, that the importance of that process and, and you are going through um, changes and trying to improve it and always, and always do things better. Um, you know, if they see the results of that and they know that you know, their program, for example, might be, um, changed or, or influenced as a result of the sort of recovery screenings that they're doing on a first day back or something, you know, they're going to buy a lot more into that process and, and you'll ultimately get a lot more out of it. I think it's, um, it's a really good point that you touch on. Like I've had some really good mentors who have told, told me to almost keep like a, almost like a performance diary sort of thing. And, you know, oh, what worked this week? What didn't, why didn't it work? And it's a lot of, it's still the only time I actually use a pen and paper to be fair. Everything yeah. else is on computer. Um, sounds, yeah, sounds the little like black an, book. Sounds like What's an Aaron that? special. 
It sounds like an Aaron special. <laughs> no, that one's not from Aaron, actually. But um, <laughs> he's, he's taught me a lot of other things, to be fair. Um, bullshit detectors is a good one, one of Aaron's. And also <laughs> stuffing things up as you go along as well. But yeah, I think it's really important to sort of yeah put that spotlight back on and making sure that yeah you're always you're always trying to improve. And I think that I'm sure a, a lot of people do that. But I think it's a really good concept for both young practitioners, um, you know, a lot of older practitioners as well. Like they, they probably vary, and there's a huge variance in you know the way experienced practitioners go about their stuff but i think it, it's a really nice concept i think that you should always be trying to improve always trying to learn i really get confused when people aren't open to further learning rightly or wrongly like that goes for anything in society like why some people are so and there's a lot of that within our society and this is a real tangent but if you know just the ways certain either sides of political parties or views in society and how unwilling people are to not listen to the other side is really almost frightening, I suppose, from a societal mm. perspective of tearing <laughs> each other apart. But yeah. um, it probably goes, I think, in our, in our field as well. Some people just, they just really don't, at least it's a vibe of not wanting to listen. And I mm. think we could do a lot better about probably being a lot nicer to each other, listening to each other, trying to learn. Um, and yeah, probably being in it a bit, Bit more together, I suppose, is probably a, a <laughs> that's a tangent there, Kieran. But I think that's a really <laughs> good message, especially for young practitioners as well, where it can be really intimidating to come into environments where you know a lot of what they're using is either social media, um, peer review publication, online resources, and, and messaging is really important. And we've got to remember that as older, as not as older, older some, but as a the practitioner and researching fraternity, we've really got to make sure that we're. Selling, sending our messages out well to our athletes and our coaches, but also from the next sort of the next generation coming through. Like we need to make sure we're supporting them. It's going to be really, really challenging as well with everything that's going on at the moment. A lot of our students are. Um, we can maybe touch on this in a sec, but it's a challenging time for young practitioners and we need to, and researchers and students, and we need to be making sure understanding our responsibilities of bringing those people, bringing those people through and making sure they're both supported, but also they're not just getting a barrage of maybe negative messages from a lot of, from a lot of ways. So yeah, a lot more cohesion and togetherness. I think it'd be nice sometimes. Yeah. It's an interesting point. One that I'll, I'll probably touch on in a minute in terms of the, the current you know, landscape in sport and, and COVID and everything. But um, just before that, I'd be interested. We were talking about obviously recovery and, yeah, there's obviously a lot of variables that come into recovery. And I think some of, I guess, my favorite, I guess, evidence-based practice that I'm looking at at the moment is you know, the application of you know, workload or, or different measures of workload and how they're influenced by recovery. Um, it's a big area, obviously, and a lot of, a lot of again, variables come into recovery. But um, I know that you've looked at sleep probably in more detail and, and particularly in the NFL and some of the sports in America. Um, what have you sort of found you know, in terms of recovery, like travel, you know, the context of those sorts of things and sleep, um, you know, and, and whether it's in, important or not. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, if we just jump straight into maybe the context of NFL, which is obviously probably yeah, like the latest applied 24 seven expertise is, um, yeah, the need for recovery in season from NFL is pretty massive. Um, 
they they're the really elite level. People forget how I think some how elite NFL athletes are in their different positions. They're really specialised now. To say that a, a centre or a, maybe a defensive interior lineman is really athletic might stun a few people, um, but they're athletic in their in their own different ways and they're really really elite. This we had guys at Oregon, for example, who I think Devin Allen came fourth in the hundred meter, hundred and ten meter hurdles at at Beijing or London, whatever the Olympics was, um, and he played wide receiver for us. So. You know, these these guys. That's the college level, let alone at NFL. So you've got these really high caliber level of athlete, and when they're going each other game in game out, they're absolutely battering each other. So your your receivers, your special teams, your DBs are going to be so fatigued. Uh, you know, repeated sprint, lower limb soreness, etc. And then your sort of interior linemen, both offensive and defensive linemen, are battering each other. They're stepping on each other, not dissimilar to a scrum in a way but you know their ankles their their wrists you know all these sort of these very important joints that they're operating with they get absolutely battered um so the need for recovery i think is really really important i think probably because the nature of the sport a lot of the recovery practices um, that are prioritized especially with the athletes uh are not maybe the fundamentals such as sleep and nutrition that we really try and push for our guys um and that, I think that's changing. I think the appreciation, especially of sleep, has really escalated in the last few years. Um, nutrition has, has always been there, I think, as a, as a well-understood foundation for many, many, many years. But I think in American sports, it's got a huge gap of which it can be utilised as a recovery strategy. I think a lot of typically American eating habits, and I don't think my American colleagues will mind me saying, but they're, they're quite poor, really, <laughs> in terms of whole food, good quality foods, and really, really some of the great dietitians that I've worked with in America understand the importance of that and they're really pushing that. And now the resources that are surrounding those guys in those professional settings is great. And I think that's a really, really positive switch of where the athletes are are buying a lot more into um, the importance of the quality of food, the importance of nutrition for that recovery process, and obviously sleep. Um, is the other sort of that main big driver or that big recovery block um, that is getting more focus. And especially, I think we always forget, I think we have like, when we talk about recovery, we talk about recovery strategies. Like how do we get back to baseline? How do we maintain homeostasis to make sure we can increase performance over time or adaptations, etc.? When sleep is really a organically human behavior. So it takes up a third of our lives. Everyone does it. It's not just, an athlete, sort of everyone does it. So there's so many factors that can affect sleep um, internally. So when we talk about uh, sleep as a recovery recovery strategy per se, we probably need to go beyond the sports science aspects of sleep and understand sleep from a behavioural context. Uh, and that might a lot of the time be outside our expertise and that's where we might need to bring in some maybe some medical help um, again, behavioural psychology, these sort of things um, to help improve sleep and help that education piece, both for ourselves and the athletes. But given the amount of the sheer carnage that an NFL game causes physically and mentally, uh, those two things are pretty big building blocks as well. And 
again, we've probably just before, just still on that is that it's not just physical recovery that we've got to worry about. I think one of the things that sleep is really great for is that, is that, that mental, that cognitive recovery. So it probably has a, it's probably a better evidence for that from a neuroscientific standpoint than from a physical standpoint. So um, for example, when we sleep, um, we, 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 st we start a process of learning essentially. So memory retention, uh, the ability to, yeah, the ability of our brain to cognitively uh, learn tasks, for example. So if we're watching film and we're a young, a young American football player and we're watching a lot of films, so quarterbacks will spend hours upon hours every day reviewing film, uh, trying to remember up to maybe 500 different plays, different options, different scenarios. It's a huge cognitive burden. And in a game, you know, that's really escalated. So that recovery process from a cognitive standpoint is also really critical so it's it doesn't always make sense to say okay sleep might actually be really really effective for that but uh, when you understand that again in an american football setting that that cognitive demand is actually incredible on some players um, sleep's a really really effective strategy for that and trying to improve that long-term sleep behavior um, pretty confident although the research is is growing that long-term positive sleep behavior. I think that's going to, and should prolong a lot of careers. Yeah. Really interesting, mate. I think it's probably a, a theme that we're going to hear a lot more about over the years. Right. I think the psychology within sport, it's obviously people know that it's important, but you know, even here, you know, a lot of teams don't have that, you know, behavioral psychologists within clubs, um, you know, it falls onto other people and, and resources obviously become, become a problem so um sure we'll, we'll hear a lot more about it um just before we go mate i'd be remiss if i didn't uh get your thoughts on coronavirus at the moment and, and the world that we're living in and in sport you know the landscape's changed significantly um you know i know sport obviously here um uh, being myself in the state of Victoria where we're under stage four lockdown is, is probably a bit different to other parts of Australia and, and different parts of the world as well. So how are you finding, you know, that whole, I guess, experience and, and obviously working within the university and students coming through and, you know, those traditional intern you know, placements and even PhD placements and, and everything else being problematic where clubs are trying to keep staff to a minimum. Um, I guess, what advice do you have for, for students and, and people trying to, I guess, find their way in the current you know, context of everything going on. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. I don't think that, um, yeah, I don't feel comfortable being the person to get to give advice in this, in this scenario. Um, maybe compared to our chief medical officers or whoever is giving the proper advice, but, um, yeah, like obviously it's probably nothing that any of us at least living, I think my grandma was telling me about post-World War II the other day. She, she had her own opinion <laughs> on what was best for society uh, in one of her classic rants. But, um, yeah, it, it's a scenario which has affected society greatly and sport's not immune to that. Um, it's, it's, it's an entertainment industry, much like um, music, uh, the arts, and I think we like to think that sports are maybe a bit separate, but, you know, it's very similar in a lot of ways. And yeah, a lot of those industries are struggling immensely, obviously, for, for well-documented reasons. And sport, obviously, is going through that at the moment. And speaking to a lot of friends and colleagues, 
um, yeah, there's loads of people who have been in lots of different scenarios and it it's, must be incredibly tough for those people. And we really feel for some of those people, like yeah, some of my yeah, really best mates have had some pretty tough times, I think over the last, last couple of months. So yeah, first of all, I suppose we're supposed to be just thinking of them, but from a um, perspective of what best to do, I think, you know, sport, there was a reason it had so much growth and it, it still is growing immensely globally. Um, so I think this, you know, I think I would hope to think that it's going to return in a, in a lot of ways. So it might be, you know, down for the moment, but I think a lot of sports hopefully will return to some similar levels of growth. Now that may take a lot of time and that may discourage a lot of people. And I think like a lot of other industries that might actually damage those really early career people, like those young practitioners who don't have as much experience as the older ones I don't have a lot, again, when we talk about what coaches and athletes value, it's that experience. And if that's being restricted in the next maybe two to three years for our people either just coming out or they're just at the start or you know, they've got maybe five years under their belt, that's really going to impact those people, um, which, which, which is sad. And those opportunities are probably going to be a little bit less. But I think it also opens up a lot of... That's probably the negative side. In terms of what best to do, I would... Um, I think probably for for students, it's an opportunity to sort of reflect. I think the fundamentals still apply. I think good people are still going to get good work and the people who put in the hardest amount of work, the people who are most dedicated and the people who want it the most. Um, and they're, they're things we look for in, in good students when either we're suggesting them to, to teams or to doing you know, PhDs or H, our HDR students, they're the sort of qualities that we look for. And I think the fundamentals still apply even in this pandemic uh, wave. I think there might be also be great opportunities as well for sort of us to take a step back as an industry. I think a lot of people have already documented this in terms of what are the main things that we really value and what what do those roles look like, I suppose, like maybe stripping it back a bit. And that might actually be beneficial for our industry moving forward. It might increase, I wouldn't, credibility is the wrong word, but just that sort of, that maybe that togetherness. I know I've talked to a lot of people who are sort of in those either tough scenarios or, you know, working part-time, um, but they're part of a, a community or the people who are still in sort of, if you take an example of an AFL hub, everyone's, Everyone's really, I think, together and I think the support sounds really, really positive. And I think um, as long as we can keep on to that as an industry, I think that'll, I think that'll bode well. From a student perspective, I think it's going to really increase the need for students to increase their skill set. At the end of the day, people are going to hire people who have a lot of strings to their, to their bow per se. So I think again, listening to what coaches, athletes and sporting organisations want, how can we increase the value of ourselves to an organisation? So if you're looking to get employment, you're going to have to have a wide variety of skill sets that maybe 10 years ago, or even five years ago, um, we didn't have, I think. And I think it's, again, I, it's a bit, I get a bit frustrated with some of the, I think internships are really great and I think it's, they're a really great avenue and, we need our young students doing internships. I think it's great, but it's, it's damn hard to get an internship these days for students. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of older practitioners and you know, 
the back in my day sort of people talk about, you know, you've got to put in the hard yards and, and, and you get there. But I think we need to probably mentor our students better. And I think a lot of organisations are starting to do that. ESSA, ASCA do a great job. Um, we've got a mentoring subject that we've put into our masters. I'm not plugging our masters here, sorry, Kieran, but I think we're, um, yeah, we've got like a mentoring subject where part of our curriculum is connecting with the network and providing support for our young students. That can come in many forms. It doesn't have to be educational curriculum. It can be a lot of other things, um, you know, just reaching out and finding a mentor, finding someone that um, can support you. And I think we need to give back a little bit as well to support these young practitioners that are going to probably find it as hard as ever to find an internship and as hard as ever to find a, a full-time position. In saying that though, I think the fundamentals still apply. I think you'll find the best and most dedicated students are still going to get the good jobs. Um, from a really applied different perspective, I suppose, you know, share like that the sharing of responsibilities between maybe an academic institution and a sporting institution that those sort of avenues might open up where you know you're not one organization isn't paying as much as they typically were but the the resources are being shared those sort of exist in some organizations already um you can also bring that down to a, a postdoctoral or a, a phd sort of setting where and again, they, they, this happens already, but I think there might be a really increased need for that where students uh, should really be looking to, for those HDR research places where they can do a research uh, PhD for their academic setting, but it gives them that really good grounding and applied experience. So yeah. I think if I was a master's student a bachelor's or master's student, I'd be looking for an applied experience post-grad. So you know, you know, master's in high-performance sport, a lot of unis are starting to do with that embedded experience or network which is critical to get those roles or um, lending myself to the, the PhD route which allows you to get a really good foundational uh, education research background and opens up a lot of avenues for work um, as well as getting that really great applied experience now and that's obviously in the in the interim that's going to be cheaper to sporting organizations and realistically, they're going to be more likely to engage in those um, sort of scenarios, maybe compared to hiring a full-time employee. So, and there's huge pros and cons, and that's probably a, a chat for another time. But um, there's a lot of considerations for a lot of people, and it's it's tough on a lot of people. I think we've just got to try and, as a collective enterprise, really try and um, support each other. For example, we've had some. People have been let go around locally around here for teams they work for and, you know, we've tried to get them involved in our, in our teaching where possible. So, you know, our current students are actually getting, you know, these great applied practitioners teaching throughout the university setting uh, inappropriate subjects. So try and share that knowledge, giving something back and, um, yeah, for sure. But I think, and the thing is we don't know. We, <laughs> a lot of us, we... COVID stuff changes every day. So we need to probably just see how it, you know, it ends up. We're getting a vaccine one day. We're all going to be, the world's going to explode in five years, the next. So we really don't know where it's all going to, to head. But again, if we can support each other, again, work together as much as possible, making sure we're looking after our younger practitioners, making sure we're collaborating where possible to, um, 
look after people who have lost their jobs. Uh, that, that's going to be really important. It also might open up a lot of other opportunities as well. So if we're looking at, you know, classically a sports science student may have started their degree thinking about, I want to go into and work for Manchester United. Um, you know, a lot of avenues and this COVID period has shown that having sort of maybe your own business, an online presence, um, developing your own resources, um, consulting in some manner. I think a lot of that stuff's been just cool to watch, I suppose, from afar. And so many of our great, so many of our students have such a great knowledge of that space, almost better than us, I think, in a way. So their ability to perform maybe in that resource where you can actually, for example, develop online resources, not just for sports people, but for the general community with some of the education that these guys have, they can develop a huge array of, of things that they might not have thought of before. Um, and keeping an open mind as well for students as well. Probably that's the last thing, just in terms of being a student, we always think we know what's best for ourselves, but we've got no idea. Really. <laughs> we, we change our mind all the time. And at the end of the day, if, if we're, if we're still studying, you know, enjoy the time that you're studying, engage with as much people as possible, but you're going to have so many ups and downs in life. And this might be a down at the moment where a lot of our practicum students can't even go on placement because of, because of lockdown or something like that. But you know, I think hopefully times are looking up sooner rather than later. Yeah, no, very good advice, mate. Well, appreciate your time, mate. Um, it's uh, very thought-provoking, a lot of that, and I think um, people get a lot out of it, especially you know, thinking about how to apply some of the things you've spoken about and evidence-based practice and, and even just you know, maybe not changing things immediately, but just um, thinking about the way that they're doing things in their own context, I'm sure. So appreciate your time, mate. Thanks, um, thanks a lot for catching up. No worries. Happy to help, Kieran. Catch you guys later. Thanks, mate. As always, thanks for tuning in. You can always check out catapultsports.com and check out our blog there for new and regularly updated information on sports performance, sports science, and other performance analytics articles. So that's catapultsports.com. Jump in and have a look. Until next time, I'm Miles Wilson. Thanks for tuning in.